I would ask you to open your Bibles again to Romans 10. I'd like to begin reading in verse 13, and I'll read through the end of the chapter, although I don't know that we will actually make it to verse 21 uh, through the message this morning. Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For, this is Psalm 19, one of David's psalms, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we continue our way through your word, Paul's letter to the Romans, we are mindful again of how much help we need to understand it aright. Your truth is not simply discerned through the exercise of our mental capacity, but it is discerned through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray, Spirit of God, that you would come with all your holy power, with all your illuminating, life-giving, light-granting power. We need you. Holy Spirit, though we have resisted you, though we have ignored you, though by our sin we have offended you and grieved you. But if you withhold your presence from us at this time, we will not only fail to understand your word, but we will not find and experience that transforming touch of your presence. So come, Holy Spirit, come. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make your presence known to us as the good shepherd, that as you teach and instruct us by your spirit, you would also uh, soothe the hearts that are anxious and agitated this day, that you would bring healing of the mind to those who are so conflicted and confused, that you would place your powerful grace and mercy upon our souls like the healing medicine it is, and that we would cease that restless and endless quest for peace, for satisfaction, for joy. We look in so many places aside from you, but only you can stand in the midst of an assembly like this and say, I am the bread of life that always satisfies. I am the water of life that quenches the deep thirst of your soul that nothing else satisfies. I am your Savior and King. 
So stand in our midst this morning and speak those words of life, of blessing, of healing, of peace, of salvation. And we pray these things, our God and Father, because you, the one true God, have revealed yourself in great mercy. And we know that your heart is full of compassion and promise for us. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you as our one true God and make this request in the powerful saving name of Jesus. Amen. Are you familiar with reverse engineering? I know many of you are, and even those of you who say, that's not my uh, particular area of, of expertise or interest. You've heard about reverse engineering uh, in the news. It's one of the great concerns with all that military equipment we left behind in Afghanistan that the bad guys are going to get a hold of it, pull it apart, and then learn you know, all those secrets that have, at least historically, made this nation's army a formidable force. Well, that's just one example. But it actually has many useful and helpful uh, uh, parts to it, and reverse engineering, or it's sometimes called back engineering, I did not know that until I, out of curiosity, was looking at this uh, yesterday. It's a process in which all kinds of things, from software to machines to aircraft to architectural structures and other products, are deconstructed in order to extract certain design information from them. It's particularly helpful uh, when those uh, original equipment manufactured parts are no longer available. And somebody says, but the part is broken. The big machine doesn't work because the little part is no longer available. What can we do? Well, if you pull it apart, and there are, I'm glad there are people in the world who are smart enough and interested enough uh, to do that hard work of, of pulling it all apart and, and then figuring out how to make a little piece or make a whole system and produce it. And so the reverse engineering process uh, is actually a really valuable part of our world. Well, this next section of Romans 10 that we just read through moves a little bit like the process of reverse engineering, and you may have caught that. And Paul uses a series of questions that move us from God's ultimate purpose of salvation that that everyone should call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. That's, that's the ultimate goal or purpose of all true Christian mission. But he actually uses a series of questions to back us through a divinely ordained process for how an individual would call on the name of the Lord. So as you read through this portion and we study through it, pay attention to these four particular questions, and it actually builds a sequence of five key steps for us to keep in mind. Now, verse 13 is a place we stopped last week, and it's a perfect doorway into this morning's study of Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. And you could go back to Joel 2 and find verse 32 specifically and see those words printed on the page in front of you. And Paul is, is using that quotation. We think that Joel likely gave that prophecy about 500, maybe 600 years if we can squeeze out a little bit more before Paul would have quoted it. So it's an ancient Old Testament promise 
that God gave through the prophet Joel. But here, Paul takes that ancient promise and places it before us as a reminder of the merciful heart of God. That's been a major theme in recent weeks for us as we've made our way through Romans 9 and Romans 10. So from ancient days, salvation has been universally available. That's the heart of God that is on display for us. That's what we need to remember. But Paul uses that little term, saved. What does it mean to be saved? Well, it means to be delivered from something that is threatening, something that could potentially have harmful consequences. And we know in the course of Paul's letter that what he has primarily in view, exclusively in view, is that rescue from the presence of sin and its deadly consequences. So God's call has universally gone into all the world through multiple generations, calling people to be saved or rescued from the consequences and the presence of their sin. So Paul quotes Joel 2.32, not simply uh, to carry us back to an ancient promise of God, but he's also revealing God's desire for all people. It's not a promise given just to Jews. It's not a promise given to one ethnic group. It's a promise given to all. Now, the promise is this. Everyone who calls upon God, specifically the name of the Lord, will be saved. That is a responsibility that rests on ordinary people like you and me. Each person must realize that they have a need for rescue. And there are some, many, today who've never even considered the, the presence of sin in their hearts, let alone the consequences of that sin. Now, if we're honest enough and we pause for a moment, every one of us would say, yeah, I, I've not only sinned, but I've been the victim of somebody else's sin. And some have been victimized it, to greater extents than others, but sin just permeates our world. And the consequences are always hard and sometimes actually deadly. But it's curious to me that there are many today who would actually say, uh, and they would even try to say it politely, no thank you, God. I've got this. I can save myself. Andrew touched on some of the basic components of religions around the world where it's essentially a way of self-salvation. And that appeals to human nature, doesn't it? I mean, not... None of us really like to ask for help, especially if it makes us look like we're stupid or ill-prepared or, you know, just kind of a numbskull. But that's actually the human condition. We can't do this. Each person must realize that they have a need for God's rescue and not only realize that need, but must actually call upon God, the God of the Bible, for rescue. We call on him because we are unrighteous and guilty before him. We call on him because we are facing condemnation and wrath. That's not a fairy tale. That, that's not a piece of truth that you know, some, some power-hungry uh, leader thought up so he could control and manipulate or, or so that she could you know, kind of be the grand puppet master of, of her followers. It's God's truth. We call on him because we cannot justify or rescue ourselves. And to put it in in Paul's terminology from Romans, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. But we also call on him because he is merciful to everyone who says, save me. 
We call on him because he is willing to forgive us for all of our sins. He's not trying to broker a deal with you or he takes, you know, the majority of sins and then lets you work off a few just so you'll feel good about yourself. He says, no, come to me as you are with all of your sin. I'll forgive it all. We call on him because he alone has the power to save. And as, as I like to remind you often, as it was such a blessing for me to hear this many, many years ago, there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. And some of you walked in here today thinking, I've sinned my way beyond God's forgiveness. I've sinned my way beyond his grace and mercy. And that is not true. Because this book that is so precious to us from the Old Testament, ancient prophecies to Paul's day, that truth is as real and powerful today that there is, in fact, more grace in our God than there is sin in us. So we call upon him for all of those reasons. Now, notice what Paul says. The first question he poses after verse 13 is, is really important for us. So here we go, kind of that reverse engineering. But this reveals to us the divine process of our gospel mission. Paul asks a very simple but profound question. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's election week again, isn't it? I'm glad we're not where we were a year ago. I just, all of that madness just was wearing me out and probably like you, I already dread the next big national cycle. On a local basis, it's, it's less of a deal for me and probably so for you and I'm glad we're not voting for presidents and it, I don't think any congressional seats are up for grabs, at least not locally. So it's all local, like mayors and city council and, or, or whatever else would be here. Signs still abound everywhere, don't they? And mail in your box, like mine, you're getting flyers and, and even had a few people come through the neighborhood knock on the door. Even one candidate for mayor in Sandy, where we live, I mean, that was, you know, I felt honored. A candidate standing right there on my doorstep. Please vote for me. But you know, as a relative newcomer to Utah, I don't know any of these candidates. I mean, I can read what they tell me, but I, I haven't really seen them personally or interacted with them. Uh, just truly, in one sense, don't know enough to say, oh, this is the candidate. So I'm trying to assess that. And, and um, in, in one sense, though, I, I could say that because I don't know them, I, I'm not actually putting a lot of trust in any of them. Well, that's really what Paul's talking about when he says believe. How will they call on him in whom they don't believe? Because see, to believe in Jesus Christ means that you actually place your trust fully in him. You're trusting Jesus to be who he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures and to do the things that he says he will do for those who come to him. The problem for many people is they have no clue who Jesus is or what he's promised he would do. And that's Paul's point here. How will they ever call on someone in whom they, they have no, no belief? And they don't know enough about him even. Just like I don't know enough about some of these candidates to check a box with confidence in my heart to say, I can trust that candidate to fulfill the promises that he or she has made for the city of Sandy. Many of us who've grown up in or at least around the Old Testament and New Testament just kind of assume that maybe everybody else has. But that's a 
a faulty assumption. There are people right around us here who really don't know who Jesus Christ is or what he has promised to do. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now look at the second question as Paul goes on from there. So calling on the name of the Lord depends on believing in him. But now a second question, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? You see, believing in him depends on hearing about him. Or actually there's some commentators who've, who've looked at the original text and say, I think Paul is actually saying, how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? Now, before we say, well, Jesus just needs to speak into our world today, that's actually not what Jesus has planned or purposed from long ago. We still end at the same place that, that God has chosen to reveal himself to uh, the, the people groups of the world through human witnesses. We'll come to that in just a moment. But how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And so we ought to ask the question, well, what is really important for us to tell people about Jesus? And it would include that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, that Jesus rose from the grave as a sign that God had accepted that substitutionary work he did on the cross for us. But there's so much more about Jesus, so much more that it would actually build a person's knowledge where they would have a, a reasonable faith, a, a reasonable hope to say, well, if he is all of that, how could I not believe him? So I'm talking about things like this. If you read through the Gospel of John, you will see one of the most remarkable expressions of doctrine and truth about Christ uh, in all of the scriptures. And he begins in chapter one by telling us that Jesus was the eternal word who not only dwelt with God, he was God. He tells us in that first chapter that he's the creator of all things and without Jesus, there was not anything made that was made. Remarkable power, remarkable divinity. He goes on from that to say, in him, that is in Jesus alone, is life. And that life was the light of the human race. Though some rejected, others received it. John goes on to describe Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's also the Son of Man prophesied from the Old Testament for the salvation of the nations. He's described as the bread of life who nourishes hungry hearts. He's the water of life who quenches thirsty souls. He's the door by whom people like us would enter eternal life. He's the good shepherd who not only leads his sheep but lays down his life for his sheep. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the light of the world. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. But if you don't know those things about Jesus, why would you even think to believe in him? If all you think is that he was an influential religious leader and, and, and prophet, I mean, what would compel you to say, I'm putting all of my trust in him? When Peter preached that great sermon at Pentecost after the Holy Spirit came down in great power, he proclaimed, uh, and I'm gonna lift just a couple of things. I won't read through his entire sermon as it's recorded in Acts 2, but I want you to listen to how he preaches with the understanding that, that the people who are under the hearing of that message need to hear some things and know some things. So listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then he goes on to say, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so succinctly that summarizes the content of the message and the Spirit of God fills Peter with this holy zeal so that the, the, the great crowd that is assembled there in front of him might hear the truth concerning Jesus and then Luke records for us in Acts 2 at that moment. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then listen to this. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's a, that's a, a way of referring to the Gentiles. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That is one of the most succinct and beautiful expressions of what Paul is writing about in Romans 10. The message is clear. Let me tell you about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, how God the Father has verified through signs and, and miracles and wonders, and you've seen it, you've heard it, and now Peter brings them to that point where they need to respond. But if he had never spoken that word, how would they have heard truth that would lead them to call? And that's what leads us to the third question that Paul asks. Back in Romans 10, how are they to hear without someone preaching? The story of Pentecost would have been very different even though thousands of people had assembled on that particular day if there had not been one voice to stand in the midst and proclaim. I venture to say that Thousands would not have been converted on that day. But thank God he had ordained something else. Now when we hear the word preaching, we tend to think of what I'm doing at this moment, kind of the formal public speaking presentation of God's word that uh, is part of so many assemblies, particularly on Sundays, right? But actually what Paul is referring to is not limited to what I am doing at this moment. No, as a matter of fact, the word, the terminology that Paul is using here just simply means to announce or to make an important piece of news widely known. You would even find a, a word, we don't use this too much in our day and in our settings, but the word herald. Uh, Christmas is coming, and one of our favorite Christmas carols is, Hark, the herald angel sings. And there are all kinds of funny stories and jokes, and maybe even you as a little kid wondered who Harold the angel was. Well, no, it's, it's not his name. It's what the angel does. The angel is an announcer. Peter was an announcer of good news at Pentecost. Paul is an announcer as he writes this, and, and he's actually leading saints like us to consider, well, where am I announcing the good news? What opportunities are right in front of me to be God's messenger, if you will, and to say to individuals or groups or neighbors or uh, community gatherings or whatever settings I find myself in, how can I be an announcer of this good news? Because if, as we do this reverse engineering, we're all the way back to the point where Paul is saying, well, how are they gonna hear 
about the one they need to believe in and then call upon for salvation. How, how are they gonna hear unless someone announces the good news? I was encouraged and exhorted as I read through one of my commentaries this week, a helpful thought that was captured there and, and it's both an expression of gratitude but also uh, a word of admonition. We thank God, this author writes, for the printed page and even for cutting edge presentations of the gospel circling the globe on the internet, but it is still the human voice that cracks with passion, the human eye that wells with tears of gratitude, and the human frame that shuffles to the podium, bent from a lifetime of service to the gospel that reaches the needy human heart most readily. Do you know why God didn't just you know, buy reams and reams of paper and print out the gospel and say to us, hey, just, just go pass out this sheet of paper. I'll do the rest. I, I just need you to help with distribution. And, and there's a point I mean, where we do print a lot of gospel literature, right? But at the end of the day, the, co- the command and commission of Christ our Savior is to individuals like you and me to go into all the world and make disciples. That's why we sang that last song. We really are faced with an unfinished task. And it's easy for us to look at the people who are really good at it or the paid professionals even. And and I hope, I don't think anybody here thinks like that, but you know, Daniel, Matt, and I are are not the paid professionals to do what we're talking about this morning and everybody else can kind of go live their lives. We're all disciple makers. We're all disciple seekers. We're all preachers in one sense, proclaimers and heralds of this gospel. And, and God knows that you personally, as you share how you have come to know the living God, how you have experienced the power of Christ's forgiveness, how you are being transformed. No, you're not perfect yet. There's so much to learn, so much to do, so, so much growth and maturity that needs to take place yet. But he didn't ask you to reach that point of perfection or some extraordinary maturity before you go and just open your mouth and say, let me tell you about Jesus. And you become the most effective means for communicating to those who've never heard. Or at least never had their ears open. They they may have heard things about Jesus or even the gospel presentation. But remember, and we've looked at this, there's a work that God does to awaken people to their need of him. But you and I are part of it, are part of the plan. And it is a true statement. They will not hear if there aren't those who are proclaiming. That ought to sober us. I know many of you don't feel like this. You're hesitant to believe it. But you really are God's first and best choice for making this eternally important news known. You say me? Yeah, you. Yes, with your own struggles. Yes, even despite some of your doubts, your fears. Yes, despite some of the theological confusion in your own head. The vast majority of us know way more than even some of those first century saints who God was using to build his church. The God of eternity plans and has designed to speak through you. Well, that leads us to the fourth question. How are they to preach unless they are sent? I love the term behind our English word that we use in our translations It's a term that, in other forms, we translate as apostle. But even more basic to that is sent one. How are they to preach unless there are sent ones? 
That's not exactly what it says here, but I, I want to tweak your thinking for a minute. Now, Paul wrote this letter with a deep awareness of his apostleship. He's what I would just call a capital A apostle. That's a limited group uh, in history, and I do believe limited to the, very, uh, the first century. Uh, among other qualifications for capital A apostleship is a personal, uh, visible encounter with the risen Christ. And Paul came to that dance, if you will, a little late, uh, but he did encounter the risen Christ face to face, the Damascus Road experience. There are other apostolic gifts and authority that were evident in the first century church, but there are also other figures in the New Testament that are referred to as apostles, and I don't think they have the same kind of apostolic authority that Paul and Peter and James and John and others carried, but they were clearly sent ones and anointed of the Holy Spirit, authorized and commissioned by the risen Christ himself to go into uh, various parts of the world and proclaim this message of good news. And so there's an aspect of this that applies to every follower of Jesus. I don't think what Paul is saying is, hey, there are going to be a limited number of capital A apostles from this point forward, and if we don't keep perpetuating this little special club, then nobody's ever going to hear, and if they don't hear, nobody's going to believe, and if they don't believe, they're not going to call, and if they don't call, they're not going to be saved. No, I I think he's actually flattening it out and speaking of just the concept of like, local churches like ours need to be conscious of not only sharing the gospel in our present community, but also strategically saying, you know what, God, would you send some from Gospel Hope? Who will we send? I don't know the answer to that question this morning. It's been fun to think about that over the last several days as I've anticipated preaching this message and coming to this point, and there are some of you that I think God might actually send. I don't have some special prophetic insight to say God told me you're going to go. But I think as a church family, we ought to be praying that God would send out from this place, out from uh, the, the, the state of Utah, maybe even out of the country, some of our own dear church family members who would proclaim this gospel so that as people hear, they would believe, and as they believe, they would call. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've had the great joy through many years of pastoral ministry to see even some very close friends leave the, the comfortable, known community that I grew up in, they grew up in, the church that we were a part of that we loved dearly, and move to places that none of us ever expected. Countries like Indonesia, Northeast China, Albania, cities like Istanbul, People that, if I could, I would introduce you to them and yet probably will never have have that opportunity. People who are unknown to the world. Their names don't appear in any major news outlet headline this morning. They live and serve and proclaim in obscurity. And for some of them, it has been hard, hard going. I mean, it would be a great joy for me as their friend to even stand and not only tell you about where they've ended up, but to say, you know, thousands of converts have come to Jesus because they have faithfully plowed the the hard soil of non-religious or other false religious soil. That's not the case in most of these places. It's one person here, one family there. It's just slow and steady, and sometimes it even seems pointless. But then when you have enough time to look back at how God began to work, and a couple of these 
a couple of these folks were just teenagers when God really began to like fire their imagination. Thinking of our youth group coming, being at a retreat all weekend, coming back today. You don't know what kind of significant stuff God does from a Friday night through Sunday morning in a concentrated time of of preaching from the word, of study of God's word, and then just a whole bunch of crazy games where most parents are like, I hope they haven't broken a leg. Or worse yet, broken somebody else's leg. It's such joy in my heart to look back to some of those retreats that were a hassle, but to now see like God was doing some stuff there. And, and that, there was a little group of, um, I'll just tell you this quick story. There were, there were three young men in our youth group almost 30 years ago. And they were a blast. Uh, they were, one of them in particular was really challenging. Like he's the kid that, that, we had a youth event on a Friday night and he was not there and his sister and a couple other kids. And these kids never missed. And I just had this sense, I'm like, there's trouble. Like if they're not here, they're up to trouble. And sure enough, I got home and you know what the trouble was? Those kids had been at my house while we were, the rest of us were at a youth group, and uh, like, I don't know, five or six of them had bought 70 rolls of toilet paper and decorated the 10 pine trees in our yard. And it rained that night. So guess what I did Saturday morning when I got up? I picked up the phone. I said, hey, Steve, Mary, missed you at the youth event last night. You want to come help clean up my yard? Didn't even ask, was it you? I mean, we, we just knew. And sheepishly, yeah, Pastor Brooks will come. It looks cool, doesn't it? <laughs> like, you know, you guys are lucky. I have a neighbor who was watching out the window, and he actually tried to write down your license plate, and he was going to call the police and all that. And so two of them showed up, and it was a little bit of work, but we got it cleaned up. Well, Steve is one of three young men that began to pray together in college. God, would you, would you send us to people who've never heard? Not one of the three were ministerial students under, in their undergraduate years. One of them went on for a master's degree in theological training. But God put an opportunity before them to go to China and teach English at the university level. And uh, they took a huge step of faith and did it. Two of them have since moved back. One found a wife there, and he has two little boys, and, and one of them likes to say that God led our dad to China to find us. Uh, found their mom first, they got married, and then they had two boys. And one of those men is still there with his wife and four children. And he could tell you so many stories of God-ordained moments, whether with students or just people on the street or neighbors, where he's just been able to say, can I tell you about Jesus? And so many there have said, I'd, I'd love to hear, I've never heard. How will they call on him in whom they have not heard? See, here's the the reverse engineering of this comes all the way back to a really personal point of, Lord, let me be one of the sent ones. Now, I've talked about it in terms of like out there and away from here, but the truth is we're all sent here at this moment. We can be sure of that. You don't have to wonder. We're all strategically placed by Jesus right here in this community at this moment in history to say to family, to friends, to whoever will listen, this is the Savior on whom you must call for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. Look at verse 16. 
Now Paul quotes Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That seems like a strange expression to us. I mean, nobody here, I didn't see anybody who came in barefooted this morning, and I'm sure that nobody would come in barefoot just to say, are those not beautiful feet? I, I don't think I've ever seen a pair of beautiful feet. I've seen some really ugly ones, and then the scale kind of moves toward, okay, that's acceptable, but beautiful, no. So what makes the feet of these messengers so beautiful? We'll go back and read Isaiah 52 this afternoon because these messengers actually come in to Israel at a moment where they've been overrun by Assyria. Life has been really hard. They're not even sure God knows about them anymore or cares, but he sends a messenger in. And the good news that you read in Isaiah 52 is simply this. Our God, Israel's God, reigns. But if you keep reading into chapter 53, there is a, there's a quite stunning turn because God doesn't reign for Israel through military might. What's Isaiah 53 all about? The suffering servant who lays down his life, who bears our sins in his body on the cross. And, and Isaiah 53 is one of, the most, one, of, one of the most vivid, graphic, beautiful expressions of the cross work that Jesus Christ did. And you realize that God actually reigns through the death of his son. And that's the same message we proclaim today. God reigns over your sins through Christ on the cross. Not through your obedience, not through your righteousness. God reigns and rules over your guilt and over your shame through the cross. Not through your religious zeal, not through your effort of obedience this week. God reigns through Jesus Christ. And that's why this is a message of power. And that's why even those who are sent in our day would say, we could say they have such beautiful feet because they really run with the good news of Jesus. Now to pull it all together, Remember the beginning of chapter nine where Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish because my kinsmen, my fellow Jews, are not believing. Then he said at the beginning of chapter 10, this is my desire and my prayer that they would be saved. It's good to have that anguish. It is essential to have that prayer. But if all we do is agonize over the the unreached people and if all we do is pray, we haven't actually taken the, the next and critical step and that is to go. And so that's actually where God is leading us. First, to have his heart for the lost to say, oh Lord, they need to be saved, to pray out of that anguish that we feel for them, but then also to proclaim the good news. So thankful for the faithfulness with which many of you serve. I love coming together, whether it be for one of our prayer gatherings, and we're gonna have one this Wednesday night, and we will pray again for people who we know, who we love, who are dear to our hearts, and say, oh God, would you, would you please break in on that hard heart and save them before it's too late? I love coming to men's meetup on Friday mornings. That's when my group meets and, and we pray. I know the ladies, when they gather, pray. We pray at community groups. I love not just praying together, but hearing you say, would you pray for my friend? Would you pray for my family member? We had a talk, or I'm meeting him for lunch, or she came over to the house briefly. And, and all of that is part of the preaching that Paul is talking about. Some of you aren't there yet, and it's time for you to take a step of growth and faith and say, you know what, I, I need to start opening my mouth for Jesus. Yes, you do. So I'm so thankful for what we're doing, but I hope this will even expand our, our imagination of what would God do with this little 
unknown, out-of-the-way church we know and love and call Gospel Hope. Who will we send? And where should we send them to? Well, you know what's true? If we follow Jesus with all our heart today, tomorrow, and even those questions will, will answer themselves in time. So because it's not clear today, it doesn't mean that we say, oh, well, he must not want us to go. It just means we say, well, Lord, there's your word. There are the promises. What can we do? And we just trust him. And we're faithful in the conversations that happen every day. So we are sent, and we should send. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, first we thank you for the good news of Christ's mighty deliverance. Thank you that he has reigned over our sin by his death on the cross. The shedding of his blood that came at such, such tremendous cost is not only enough, but super abundant in its power to cleanse away our sin, to accomplish forgiveness, to remove our guilt, our shame, our fear, to bring us back as we are reconciled not only to you, but even to one another. Thank you. I pray that for those who are here this morning who've never submitted their hearts to you, who've never called upon your beautiful, powerful name for salvation, that this would be the day. And I ask again, Lord, that you would issue that divine summons to them, that you would call them, and that in faith they would call upon you. Would you do that now, please? Holy Spirit, would you do that right now? And then we ask, Father, as a church family, you would give us the joy of seeing individuals so stirred by the power of your word, so stirred by a Holy Spirit vision for those who have not yet heard and this, uh, this divine gospel sequence that they might begin to submit their hearts to a plan and purpose formed long ago to carry the good news because we know the answer to all four of these questions. They won't call on him in whom they do not believe and they won't believe in him of whom they have never heard and they can't hear unless someone preaches and these heralds won't go unless they are sent. So fulfill your purpose. Fulfill it right here in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.